Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 79. Keeping it real, Italian theatre in perspective. Last time I dissected the Spanish Playhouse, home to some of the finest theatre of the Renaissance period. But now it's time to get back to Italy, the birthplace and cradle of the Renaissance. Across the span of the period, there were big changes in the ways plays were presented, and Italy continued to lead the way. Although the later medieval theatre was not without ambition when it came to staging plays, just think back to the highly scenic pageant wagons from Valenciennes, or the scaffolds of the Castle of Perseverance, for some spectacular examples. For most, it came down to a rudimentary stage, with performers reciting well-worn stories to an audience. As things moved on in the early Renaissance, art, painting and sculpture led the way, and theatres soon followed. Artists tried to inject more realism into their work, showing their subjects as they really were, or as close as they could get them. The colours of clothes, skin tones, fruit, countryside, scenery, and, well, whatever the artist's subject was, became more subtle and realistic, as artists looked at the different impacts of viewpoint, light and light sources, in paintings, and strived to show the world as it really was all of which was part of the humanist development of thinking that happened during the period. The discovery of an understanding of one thing in particular made those working in the theatre sit up and take note. Perspective in art had arrived. Filippo Brunelleschi is credited with being the first person to describe linear perspective, of how to represent a three-dimensional object realistically in just two dimensions, usually on a piece of paper or canvas. Between 1450 and 1420, he conducted experiments in painting Venetian buildings in a true-to-life way. He achieved this by drawing a grid on his paper before painting the scene in front of him. He then studied the relationship between the relative sizes and distance of his subjects, and then expressed that relationship by drawing a series of parallel lines that converged into a single point in his drawing, which has become known as the vanishing point. His work was soon taken up and improved by others, and very soon artists throughout Italy were experimenting with realistic representation of the world around them. Events in the theatrical world that were happening at exactly the same time were about to converge with the world of art. For the theatre, 1414 is perhaps the most significant date in the Renaissance when it comes to developments on the stage moving forward. In that year, an event that is said to have been as significant as the publication of Aristotle's Poetics occurred. The text of Vitruvius's treatise on architecture, De Architectura, finally emerged from a forgotten shelves of a library or monastery somewhere in southern Italy. I've mentioned this before briefly in season two when we were immersed in the Roman theatre. So as a reminder, Vitruvius's ten-volume manual on architecture is the only surviving work on the subject from antiquity. It was written in the early Empire period as a practical manual and dedicated to his patron, the Emperor Augustus. One of the books of the ten describes civic buildings and includes details of the shape and size of theatres and thoughts on how acoustics should work. You might remember ideas about strategically placed resonating vases that he suggested might improve audibility in the Roman theatre. After its rediscovery, De Architectura was first printed in 1486 and immediately excited Renaissance stage designers. Here, they suddenly had descriptions in very specific details of how Roman auditoriums and stages had been arranged. 
Now, there were many inconsistencies and uncertainties contained within Vitruvius's work, and these were hotly debated. But nevertheless, it became a very influential and authoritative work. In his academy in Rome, the Italian humanist Julius Pompeius Laertus made a close study of the work, and the students from all over Europe who gravitated to his lectures then took those ideas back to their own countries, so that the word of Vitruvius became very widespread throughout Europe. Following on from Brunelleschi in 1435, Leon Battista Alberti, a humanist polymath of the type so frequently found in the period, published a treatise in which he gave practical instructions for achieving perspective in drawings and artistic technique. This further popularised the theory of perspective painting, and theatre designers began to think on how this could be applied to theatrical scenery. In 1454, Alberti was commissioned by Pope Nicholas V to design a playhouse, although his vision for it was soon overtaken by others in the same field. The artists now familiar with these new ideas were frequently the same artists who worked on theatre scenic paintings, and so there was a crossover from art to theatre. As we know, the setting of many plays, especially in the early Renaissance, was the street scene, with three or four house fronts with balconies and alcoves. But now, the idea that painting techniques could be used to show the countryside or city far off in the distance, or to give the impression of an alcove or passageway with a lot more depth than had ever been seen before, was beginning to emerge. So it was the combination of Vitruvius with additional commentaries on the original work by the likes of German printer Jodocus Badius in 1493 and French architect Philander in 1544 and the introduction of perspective painting that fascinated and stimulated theatre architects and directors to want to take bold attempts at creating special illusions, some of which were highly extravagant. This was, after all, being financed by princely sponsors, who had very deep pockets and were happy to show off the talents of their protégés to the very best effect. It's difficult to say when the first stage set using perspective was put into use, but a good candidate takes us back to Ferrara in 1508. The production in question was of Ariosto's comedy Casaria, or The Strongbox. The audience were treated to a set showing some freestanding houses in front of what appeared to be a panorama of gardens, cottages, church spires and towns receding from the near foreground into the distance under a blue sky. All of this was painted on a backdrop. There may have been tentative or partial attempts at this type of perspective scene painting before, but if we assume that this was the first and most successful attempt to date, it must have been a startlingly fresh theatrical experience, and I think that this was entirely plausible, as Ferrara was at the forefront of theatrical innovation on more than one occasion. This work was the achievement of Pellegrino de San Daniel, an artist, but clearly one who was well-versed in Vitruvius. He followed, very closely, the Vitruvian prescription that tragic scenes are delineated with columns, pediments, statues and other objects suitable to kings. Comic scenes exhibit private dwellings with balconies and views representing rows of windows after the manner of ordinary dwellings. Satiric scenes are to be decorated with trees, caverns, mountains and other rustic objects rendered in landscape style. Taking Vitruvius so literally may not have achieved his desired intentions. It is thought that for him the settings were intended to represent his idea of the perfect city, not something that attempted realistic representation of any particular city. 
But as the idea of perfection in architecture was present in the Renaissance, some theatrical designers may have leant towards this. But for many, idealisations meant romanticisation. Or at least a simplification, so that the different settings, particularly the town versus the countryside, and the implications that that had for the characters in the play, were easily understood by the audience. From about 1530 to the end of the century, there was a flurry of theatre building in Italy. These were permanent, fully enclosed buildings that displayed the skill and ingenuity of Italian architects of the time. Permanent theatres were built in Ferrara in 1531, Rome in 1545, Mantua in 1549, Bologna in 1550, Siena in 1561 and Venice in 1565. And that is only the major cities. There were many more in smaller towns. Given the often generous budgets and the enthusiasm of Renaissance designers and artists to experiment with new techniques, stage sets soon became very elaborate. Innovative use of wood, plaster and canvas led to stages being filled with ever more elaborate representations of houses with fluted columns, pediments, pedestals and the like, or, for a pastoral scene, an outdoor landscape filled with trees, bushes, rocky caves, cliff faces and grottos. The theatre designer had a lot of work, but they were not yet a dedicated role. In this period, your theatre designer was most likely to also be an architect and probably a painter and sculptor too. Many now lesser-known names were innovative in theatrical design, but the influence of some individuals still stands out. Sebastiano Serlio, who was born in Bologna in 1475, was also an architect, but one of those whose contribution to theatre design has lasted the test of time and still influences theatre today, and that is still only part of his legacy. As well as designing many fine buildings throughout Italy, he was part of the team of architects employed to build the palace at Fontainebleau near Paris. He wrote extensively on architectural principles and his series of books called Architectura was the first Renaissance work on architecture to include a section devoted to theatre, although it is admittedly rather brief. That work also included his theories on perspective drawing and painting and the art of recreating three-dimensional objects on a flat surface. His works also leaned heavily into Vitruvius, and his set designs embraced the use of the vanishing point and perspective. Indeed, he took these principles to an extreme. His stage sets were designed so that there was a single vanishing point on stage, and this was further enhanced by the use of lighting to increase the sense of depth. He also used a raked stage as part of the perspective effect, and may have been the first designer to introduce it since the ancient Greek theatre. His version of the raked stage had a much steeper angle on it than anything we think the ancient Greeks used, as his concern was for visual effect, whereas the Greeks were more concerned about audibility. The decoration on the floor of the stage was also used to enhance the perspective effect, so typically used lines and patterns that could be elongated or reduced towards the rear of the stage. This is probably the point where the terms of upstage and downstage were originated and caught on. Serlio also used painted flats, incorporating them into the stage set at different points, so that each pair was set further upstage and further instage than the last, to support the creation of a sense of distance. Wing space became an important consideration in theatre design. Now they were used not only to accommodate waiting actors and maybe a quick costume change, but were the space used to store flats before they were carried or pushed onto stage. 
Through his writings, Serlio promoted architectural innovations in theatre design. He drew on the ideas from classical Greece and Rome and supported the Vitruvian idea of the semicircular auditorium that was equal in size to the stage area. He believed that this 50-50 split between audience and the stage was the perfect form for theatre. Serlio, as both an academic and a practical designer, was the link between the classical theatre of Vitruvius and the new Renaissance theatre. By expanding on Vitruvius rather than trying to slavishly replicate his ideas, he gave Italian theatre design some room to breathe, and it began to find its own fresh ideas. Part of that was the first use of perspective in an integrated feature of theatres. Serlio's impact through the fusion of Vitruvius and perspective cannot be underestimated, as it came to infuse theatrical presentation from then onwards. But personally, he gets some bad press, which is probably justified for his slavish adherence to achieving the perspective effect on stage. It seems clear to me that he was undoubtedly a genius, but would not have been easy to work for, especially if you dared to suggest some amendment to his plans. Once the raked stage had been introduced, its use spread very quickly, because it helped with the impression of perspective, although of course it also had an added benefit of giving a better view for the audience of the actors positioned upstage. Not that that position could have been adopted much on a stage dominated by the perspective scenery. On a stage where the scenery was designed to look more distant as it receded from the audience, the size of objects, be they painted or three-dimensional props, had to be reduced, so placing an actor near the back of the stage didn't really work and at the very least could look odd and destroy the illusion and probably became a complete distraction. So, by a necessity caused by the scenic design, the action of the play mostly took place on the front of the stage, in front of the beginning of the incline of the rake and the perspective effect of the scenery. Some stages had a front platform added, something like a very truncated thrust stage, to accommodate the playing space when it had become so reduced by the requirements of the scenery. There was often side access via steps onto the platform or front stage area so that the scenic effect would remain undisturbed by the apparently oversized actor making their entrance through it. It probably didn't seem like it at the time, but performing in this area harked back to the medieval and Roman periods, where the playing space, the platea, was a well-defined area in front of a fixed backdrop. And if anyone did spot that similarity, then the Roman-loving architects probably thought it was a good thing. The movement of scenery also harked back to the earliest theatre, although again, this may have been unwitting. But as the Greek and Roman text emerged, there is a suggestion that their staging methods were studied by one Aristotle de San Gallo, who reintroduced their method of scenery change at Castro, a town on the coast of the Heel of Italy, in 1543. You will no doubt remember that in the later ancient Greek theatre, painted panels were used that could be rotated to change the suggestion of location, a piece of stage machinery called the periakatoi. Sangallo took this idea and replicated it on the Renaissance stage. I should mention that Sangallo was a sculptor, painter and architect who, like many of his time, applied his talents wherever they were requested. Aristotle was a nickname. He was christened Bastiano. And the nickname doesn't originate from his involvement with the theatre, but because of the air of seriousness that he carried wherever he went and applied to whatever he did. 
His work was soon advanced with the introduction of sliding flats by Serlio and others, and I really shouldn't gloss over the introduction of this feature of stage design. From its first introduction, the flat was appreciated as an effective and efficient method of changing scenery and was quickly adopted. It remains a mainstay of basic scenic effect to this day. Canvas stretched on a light wooden frame meant artists could work quickly in a workshop creating their designs. The flats could then be moved to a position in the wings, easily stored and equally easily moved when they were required. The flats also allowed for the wing space to be open but hidden from the view of the audience. The stage was no longer a box with solid sidewalls. Entrances and exits were no longer confined to the on-stage doors, but could be affected simply by walking to the wings behind the scenery flat. All of this could be said to be the result of the need to use flats as part of the perspective effect. With typically three or four flats in use on each side of the stage, the painted scenes were arranged to reduce in distance and coordinate with the painted backdrop that had replaced the solid three-door set. As I've mentioned, theatre buildings in Italy were now fully enclosed and so required artificial illumination, which was another area that saw continued improvement in the period. The basic lighting came from numerous candles and oil lamps hung above the stage and positioned around it. They had thick wicks so that they burned slowly, but I would guess also with some quite dirty smoke. Good quality candles were expensive, and the temptation to use cheaper, dirtier ones must have been strong. It's difficult to imagine what the air must have been like in a crowded theatre of the time, a very different world from today's air-conditioned luxury. Lamps and candles were removed or added or moved around by attendants as the lighting of scenes required. The use of light was enhanced in time, with candles and lamps being stood behind coloured glass to create subdued effects, or in front of reflectors to enhance their output. It was hard work illuminating not only the stage, but the auditorium as well, and candles and lamps were a major theatrical expense. In 1585, another first was created. The Teatro Olimpico in Vicenza in northern Italy was completed after a 20-year building programme. The theatre was the last design of architect Andrea Palladio, one of the most influential architects of the period and another close follower of Vitruvius. Indeed, he had made the study of ancient architecture his lifetime's work and probably had a better understanding of the ideas than anybody else alive at the time. Palladio had provided the architectural drawings for the illustrated the Italian edition of Vitruvius, which included his best stab at the floor plans and elevations of theatre buildings described in the translation. He even went as far as planning a reconstruction of a Roman theatre in Verona. Although Palladio would never see the Teatro Olimpico completed, he died in August 1580, he did have practical experience of building theatres. A couple of decades earlier, as a young architect, he had overseen the building of a temporary theatre in Vicenza, and most notably in the Great Hall of the Basilica Palladiana. A look at the external facade of that building, which still stands today as a UNESCO heritage site, shows all the influence of Roman architecture that you would expect. The Teatro Olimpico was built on the site of an old fortress that had latterly been used as a prison and a gunpowder store, but was now abandoned. The shape of the building was not particularly conducive to building a theatre, but Palladio was determined to recreate a Roman theatre as closely as he could, and he did so, with the only significant concession being to make the seating area an elongated ellipse shape rather than the strictly semicircular. 
Palladio's death was a setback for the project, but his son took up the reins, working closely to his father's designs. Quite soon, it was realised that more talent was needed, and the skills of another prominent architect were added to the project, when Vincenzo Scamozzi was brought on board. He had already taken over other projects from Palladio and completed them successfully. He made some significant contributions to the external features, including an archway in the old medieval wall that mirrors the archway sited at the back of the stage, giving the audience the sense of moving from the medieval to the Renaissance as they enter the theatre. But his most innovative contribution to the theatre was his design for the stage sets, which featured street views disappearing into the distance, some of which had internal lighting to keep the illusion of real houses as realistic as possible. We know these designs were almost entirely the work of Scamozzi because Palladio's original plans had no details of the stage sets. His designs for the stage area simply show blank walls. Now, there is no doubt that Palladio was well aware of the Roman street scene. Some of his plans for other projects include painted street scenes. So it seems likely that the omission was for the rather more practical reason that the adjoining land that was planned to extend the theatre had not been acquired at the time of Palladio's death, and he had been holding back on his plans while waiting to see when and exactly what space would be available to him. When that land was acquired from the local council, an extension was built under Scamozzi's instructions. So he gets the credit, but the intention for this land and the debt to Palladio is detailed in the documents requesting the land from the city governors, which explicitly say that the land would be used to create perspective scenery, and continues by saying, along the lines that our colleague Palladio, who had designed it, suggested to permit perspective views. So through a main central arch and six others across the rear of the stage, the audience could enjoy the view of what appeared to be a street disappearing way into the distance, all constructed with plaster, canvas and paint. Behind these arches there was some depth, provided by the extension to the building, but only a few metres, and without any form of access. The seven archways appeared to be very deep and long if viewed from the correct position. By repeating the effect seven times, Scamozzi ensured that every audience member could experience the visual effect in at least one of the archways. But this does illustrate the problem with perspective designs. They only work perfectly from a quite specific vantage point. If that is set for the centre of the auditorium, then anyone either side of this would see parts of the scenery elongated or truncated, and that distortion would increase the nearer the edges of the auditorium you were sitting. So designers became obsessed with the perspective effect, early adopters playing with their new toy with unbridled enthusiasm, and seemed to forget that the play, not the scenery, was the whole point. Some designers for other theatres worked to a single point of perspective and pinpointed the best seat in the house that could be used to appreciate that effect fully. This seat became known as the Prince's Chair. But back to the Teatro Olimpico. The first play presented there was Sophocles' Oedipus, so the setting was in ancient Thebes. Sadly, the theatre soon ran into problems and very few productions were staged there. I haven't been able to find the precise reason for the short life of the theatre, but the restrictions and impracticalities of the design and the extravagance of the theatre surely played its part in its demise. The sets for Oedipus Rex were never removed from the site and, quite miraculously, have survived as does the original lighting system that used gas oil lamps. 
The theatre is occasionally used for performances to this day, but the limited audience capacity of 400 and the problems of producing work safely in such an old building without harming it mean that its use as a theatre is very limited. And in terms of the span of theatre history, the Teatro Olimpico is something of a diversion. Although the devotion of recreating the theatre of ancient Rome and the experimentation with perspective scenery is much admired and fed into the future of scenic design, it was never much directly imitated. The way forward was the proscenium arch and painted scenery, and away from the rigid scenic design that perspective scenery requires. The first theatre to feature a proscenium arch was probably the theatre in Parma, built in 1618, and as a design feature, it quickly took hold. Once the trick of perspective and the vanishing point had been explored and understood in the Italian theatre, there was nowhere else for it to go in an innovative way. It's a clever trick, but it is just one trick that, in the final assessment, is rather superficial and expensive to create and maintain. Other theatres in Italy that delighted in the perspective effect were built, but they had relatively short lives, and more often than not they ended up being used as opera houses and concert halls, where the beauty of the decoration could still be admired, but was not an integral part of the performance. A theatre that wedded itself to the Roman past, and a specific scenic trick, had little chance of a long-term life. It was, to all intents and purposes, a prison of the designer's own making. Not that Scamozzi was deterred. He tried again. His Teatro alla Antica, literally theatre in the style of the ancients, in Sabianetta near Mantua, had a similar design with architectural references to ancient Rome and used the perspective effect. But in this case, with just one central arch, in an acceptance that replicating the effect for the entire audience was just too much of a constraint. Designers came to realise that perspective effect could still be put to good use in the theatre, but in a simplified form through the painting of movable flats. For theatrical purposes, there really was no need for the receding arches with their plasterwork and extravagant decoration. The painted flat was good enough. Illusion on stage remained a popular feature of Italian theatre. And although no one person was responsible for advancements in stage illusion and machinery, Nicola Sabatini stands out as a real innovator. Born in 1574, he worked as a theatre designer in the court of the Duke of Urbino, where he came up with some very innovative designs. His machinery that coordinated the dimming of lighting, and his ideas about creating a spotlight by placing a polished basin behind a light source, revolutionised stage lighting. The most popular effects were flying effects. Many early theatres were temporary and not built to support the weight of stage machinery, but with the emergence of permanent theatres, much more was possible. Sabatini designed several different methods of giving the illusion of flight. The most practical was a track running along a beam incorporated into the scenery that could support a platform or a basket and an actor. The track was hidden by flats or other scenery depicting clouds or stars and the platform moved along the track by machinery. Pulleys and counterweights meant that the raising and lowering of the actor and the supporting platform could be achieved with comparative ease. Sabatini was a great admirer of the Periacatoi, and it remained his favourite option for changing scenery. He improved on the Greeks and Vitruvius by planning a series of the devices placed on the side of the stage that could be rotated simultaneously, using winches to effect a smooth and complete scene change very quickly. 
He appreciated that precise timing of the rotations would be required and that there might be issues with the wings becoming overcrowded and the potential for gaps appearing if the periocatoi were not placed in precisely the correct position. He also anticipated that the raked stage would lead to problems with positioning the devices and suggested painted cloth or hinged end pieces to cover any gaps between the bottom of the periocatoi and the stage that the slope of the rake might cause. It was a problem that Serlio had also encountered when his wrecked stage met the bottom of a flat. He had opted for changing the shape of the flat at the bottom and top ends to fit the rake. So Sabatini's idea was something of a more flexible improvement on this. Sabatini is perhaps best known for his column wave effect that was supposed to show the sea on stage. He designed a circular column with waveform scenery attached that could be cranked from the side of the stage. As it turned the scenery gave the wave effect, and when joined with several other similarly cranked columns, a sea effect with depth on the stage was achieved. It was an effect that was very popular and used well into the 18th century. He also takes some credit for the introduction of grooves on the stage floor to assist with the rolling in and out of flats and the roller curtain so that one painted backdrop could be easily replaced with another dropped in front of it. Giacomo Torelli was another stage designer, painter and architect who became known for his innovative stage machinery. By the mid-1600s, the use of flats had become widespread. Many theatres had retained very deep stage areas, so it was typical for a large number of flats to be used in a production on each side of the stage. These needed to be changed for different scenes, and although they were light and easily moved, with or without the grooved system, they required a relatively large number of people to make the change smooth and efficient. In 1640, Torelli invented a cranking system that could change all the flats simultaneously with the turn of a handle and just needed one person to operate it. The system was known as the pole and chariot system and used understage carts connected by ropes and pulleys to a central drum. Not only did this create an impressive effect on stage, but was said to replace up to 16 stagehands with just one person. It's easy to see why theatre managers would be tempted to make the improvement. Stage machinery was expensive and generally reserved for the richest theatres but there seems little doubt that this exceeded anything even the most extravagant and technical medieval play cycle had been able to achieve, and for its spectacle and ingenuity it surely also rivalled the most extravagant theatre of ancient Rome. A major point of Greek and Roman theatre was verisimilitude, truth-seeing. With the use of new design innovations and perspective scenery, Renaissance designers attempted to create real worlds on stage by drawing influence from the rediscovered Roman ideas and improving upon concepts of the Greek and Roman era theatre. But these attempts had a limited life in their purest forms. The advent of perspective scenery gave the architect and the artist, who are often the same person, preeminence over the performer and the playwright, and that was to the detriment of theatre and theatrical innovation. Slavish adherence to a very defined set of rules that focused on one aspect of the theatrical experience was not the best way forward for theatre in general. However, the ideas developed at this time did feed into scenic and theatre building design and became part of the fabric of theatre presentations, both with and without the proscenium arch.
Next time, we will linger in Italy to look at one of the most influential theatrical forms. You've already heard it mentioned at times as we've travelled through Renaissance period Italy, France and Spain. But now, the time has come to take a longer look at, of course, the Commedia dell'arte. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the podcast, there are links in the show notes to ko-fi.com for a one-off tip and the Patreon members area, where there is lots of additional audio content that you get instant access to for a small monthly fee. Patreon supporters are currently listening to extracts from the autobiography of Konstantin Stanislavski, whose theatrical theories fed into the work of Chekhov and the Method Acting School, among many others. Please do spread the word about the podcast and I look forward to your company next time. But if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.